so we have some time for any questions about practice or about the talks that anybody has before walking practice today. Or just also questions about taking the practice home too. medical condition of, I forget what the word is, is it tin? tinnitus? Tinnitus. So I don't know anything about that, but uh, I experience and a number of people experience and people talk about the, I guess you could call it an inner sound, so a sound that doesn't seem to be emanating from something outside of us and doesn't seem to necessarily be coming from anything inside of us either. It's sort of like a background sound and recently in a talk I gave, I I gave my theory of this nada, this sound, and um, all the conditions we live in, we swim, remember the, I forget who it was, was saying, I think uh, Ajahn Jayasaro, that we were in water and we don't realize it. One of the qualities of the water we're swimming in is anicca, it's a change, flux. This is true uh, in, in all regards, so the visual experience is in flux, the auditory experience is in flux, the tactile experience is in flux, cognition, mentality is also in flux. Everything's in flux. And when we notice this characteristics, this characteristic through any of the sense gates, it has a particular pervasive quality. So like when we notice that in visual, the visual experience, it's like the shape and the color and the form is less important. And what actually we perceive then is more the dance, the, the flux of the visual experience. And to me, this is what it's like, that background sound. Ajahn Sumedho uses it quite a bit in his practice. He calls it the sound of silence. And to me, this is what it's like. It's, it's the background... Um, it's seeing, it's in this case hearing, the most subtle aspect of sound, which is its flux. The whole universe of sound is in flux. And in that sense, when the mind is keyed in on that, the distinctions in the sounds aren't what's being keyed in on, but the changing of the sounds. And so we get that sort of background buzz or shh. Uh, Hinduism uses a lot, talks a lot about these uh, sounds, and Om is kind of a representative of that sort of universal sound. And it, the nice thing about that sound, because it has no distinctive characteristics, because it has no center, it's a very useful object for meditation, 
because it brings the mind to calmness. It's like it doesn't bring the mind to grasping because it's ungraspable, that sound. It doesn't have a location to grasp. It doesn't really have any distinctive characteristics to grasp. So the mind tends to let go the more you pay attention to it. So you can you can experiment with using it, especially if it gets predominant, or just continue with the breathing and just notice and let it uh, arise in the background, let it permeate the experience of feeling the sensations of breath. Last night you mentioned in passing awareness practice, teaching on the awareness of the mind, non-clinging, and I don't remember having heard that before, at least the awareness practice I just use that the same as I use the word mindfulness yeah so I consider this path the path of awareness or mindful awareness or awareness of the of the present moment so I use those terms synonymously mm-hmm Emo. Would you ask us to uh, see whatever truth came into our minds at this point? And uh, I'd like you to comment on uh, another technique you gave us last night, which seemed like an easier, softer way, which was when resentment comes up, just saying, I see you, Mara. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's much more fun. <laughs> yeah, so the, but the, the truth, you know, this is, we're, we're sort of deeply idealistic. So when we look for the truth, we think the truth should be something special, as opposed to our old habits of resentment. But that can be the truth, you know, like really seeing the mind sliding into resentment in a clear way is a moment of real truth. But yeah, whatever whatever way works, <laughs> that's the important thing. I need something that sits. Julie? Mm-hmm. And that that ground, like using that Tibetan formulation, that ground of our being has some characteristics, if you will. I mean, it's always tricky when you start saying something like that. But uh, one of the characteristics is what you mentioned, this, like you go look and you don't find anything there. So it has that characteristic of emptiness, but it also has a characteristic of uh, luminosity in that from that ground of being, all things are known. Right? So there's this uh, awareness quality or knowing quality that seems associated with that ground of being. Things are known effortlessly. So there doesn't need to be an object doing the knowing. So the knowing is part of this ground of being or the awareness. But this is awareness before it gets connected with an object. It's like the potential, maybe the potential of knowing, the potential of awareness. The thing that bursts from this ocean of emptiness is uh, appropriate responsivity.
you know, just like uh, action, action not coming from uh, fear, but just like nature responding, like the water flowing down the mountain. So um, one, one formulation is that manifold capacity or unstoppable compassionate action come from this too. So a lot of what we know about this ground of being is what comes out of it, like knowing and unstoppable compassionate action. Just like we can know the ego too by what comes out of it. I mean, the ego isn't even a thing. It's a pattern. You know, it's a pattern of identifying with fear, for example, or with craving. And then we can see what spins out of that pattern. So in a way, we discover the, the real path to discovering this ground of being that has no thing to grasp is we open to our world as it is and we find that we can open to all things even the really difficult things and the really beautiful things and in opening to all things we intuitively realize that which opens to all things that which is stable or at ease with all things so it's like uh, we're, dis we're discovering this capacity of the ground of our being to receive or to be uh, fearless. But to do that, we have to open to our life completely. That's what reveals it, opening to our life. So in a way, we use Dhamma, the world as it is, to reveal the Buddha. Just like it's, you know, it's a chicken and egg thing. It's the Buddha, this Buddha nature this ground of being that allows us to know the way things are because it gives us equanimity so then we can actually see the world as it is. But it's opening to the world as it is that reveals the Buddha within. That's how we know where the Buddha is here as opposed to Mark, is when I'm in the middle of my life uh, but not weighed down with fear or craving or confusion. So then that's the Buddha being, doing, living dharma, seeing dharma. So as a sort of ordinary practitioner, our job uh, is to reveal this ground of being by, uh, by being so fully in our life, so fully open and responsive to our life as it is, that that activity itself requires a letting go of the identification with the world. And you can think of some activities, like the thing I used to do a lot when I was young and uh, in my 20s and backpacking and camping a lot, I used to love with my, with my buddy to run down streams, you know, with boulders. And uh, it's a little, it's just dangerous enough that you have to really pay attention because you can, you can really hurt yourself. I mean, you can easily sprain an ankle or something. And just letting go, you know. And if you try to do it right or control it or think, like, where are you going to step? You lose it. You just have to sort of, one, you're just going to the next step, and you're just assuming there's another place to step. And, and uh, I mean, when I think back on sort of moments of, of uh, really ecstatic joy, 
that's what comes to mind. Those kind of situations come to mind. And it's like that in life, like giving ourselves so fully to the moment, so completely to the moment, that we're not constructing something apart from the whole. It's just the Buddha knowing Dhamma and that that natural, compassionate responsivity arising because of that, that the purity of the Buddha knowing the Dhamma. So that's that's what reveals the Buddha. See, without this world this and this delusion, there really isn't Buddha. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's no enlightenment without delusion. Enlightenment is a concept for deluded beings. <laughs> so this is our predicament, you know. So we're deluded beings, and, and as we get a sense of our delusion, as we feel more and more how heavy it is, we construct some concepts called enlightenment. But they, those concepts are useful because it, it helps clarify the delusion. And the more we open to the delusion, instead of reacting to it in, in sort of predictable habit, habitual patterns, the more we open to delusion, the more it disappears. Delusion depends on the pattern of reactivity. So the more we completely embrace our lives, open to our lives, our heart, our bodies, our conditions, the more freedom has to be expressed. So this is why the path is so simple. I mean, it's not easy, but it's really simple. It's just about we just keep opening to our life as it is, whatever is showing up. Like Ajahn Sumedho talks about so much, one of the central teachings is, you know, he doesn't talk about metta in terms of loving kindness. He talks about metta as opposed to uh, as uh, welcoming the moment, welcoming whatever is arising. Just assuming that everything belongs. If it's here, arising in this moment, then it belongs. As much as our minds might tell us otherwise. So we can practice like that. And see what kind of heart that reveals. Uh, practicing that welcoming. Kevin? experience like Kevin. <laughs> yeah. So so here's the question then. Can we take a step back and really open to being a deluded being who's caught and he can't get free of their anger, their resentment, their self-righteousness? I mean, I slipped over and over again in this last sit into a particular issue in my life. You know, and fortunately I have a sense of humor about being caught. But I it's also just, I really see how juicy it is. You know, the mind, the pattern of being caught and the juiciness 
the self-centered juiciness there in the particular stories that are enticing for us. That's how it is. So can the question is, can we step back with a sense of humor and compassion and patience and wisdom that understands, well, this is how it is. These patterns of taking things personally, taking things seriously and reacting accordingly, they have momentum. And this momentum is like this, meaning it's expressing itself right now like this, like this tendency to want to think and proliferate and get caught, even though we know it's destructive, even though we know it leads to no good, still, here it is. Can that be okay? So there are a lot of conditioned patterns in our minds that aren't going to go away. And the question is, are we going to postpone freedom until we have a perfect personality that does just what it's supposed to do? Because that may be a long time. <laughs> but we don't need to postpone freedom. We can find freedom in being. It may not feel like we want it to feel. But the freedom isn't that it's a pleasant experience. Being caught up in resentment will never be a pleasant experience. But completely opening to it is freedom. We can be free with that unpleasant experience of being resentful. Meaning... We're allowing it to express its nature without making it mine, without making it good or bad, without turning it into anything, just letting it be what it is already, but not adding anything to it. So this crazy world, we allow it to be a crazy world. This crazy mind, we allow it to be a crazy mind. That's a deeper kind of happiness that doesn't depend on us being first a perfect human being. But it's okay it, in fact, it's very useful, as Ajahn Taniya said in, in the little bit that I read today. It's useful to do what we can to cultivate wholesome conditions because they tend to be more stable. They're easier to open to. If we are sitting here feeling a lot of gratitude, it's relatively easy to open to gratitude than to open to resentment. But we can open to both. And the freedom that is realized when we open completely to gratitude or to resentment, it's the same freedom. It's just that the cause for opening here is a pleasant experience called gratitude, and the cause here is opening to a difficult ex or painful experience called resentment. But the opening, that letting go of attachment, sort of entering the flow of life, is the same. The experience of not grasping is the same. Life, which there's a great line from a poem, um, Hokuzan says, do you remember that one? Trying to remember the author of that poem. Anybody remember? Hokusan is that famous Japanese artist with the big wave. You know, it's you see it a lot. Anyway, someone used that as a title. Marcia Rose reads this poem a lot. But anyway, there's a there's a line in that poem about uh, life living through us, or something like that. And and this is the idea, sort of, to without feeding the resentment or the negative stories that we have, but we don't deny that this is how it is either so we're not suppressing or repressing we're just letting life live through us and so we take the position of the Buddha awareness uh, and we allow our life to be our life mm -hmm. Judy I thought you were going to quote John Lovett because you mentioned her lines before life is impersonal all life wants is a <laughs> <laughs> thanks that's good 
Is it pronounced Michelle? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it kind of goes back to a couple nights ago when I was talking about placeholders and like what the place of a placeholder is, what the role of a placeholder is, and not getting confused by the placeholder. So all religions, all organized spiritual paths are just placeholders. And I think uh, one of the great things about the Buddhist path, especially Theravada Buddhism, is it's very pragmatic about that. It has this idea of skillful means that, there is, that, that the path isn't an absolute. The teachings aren't absolutes. They're just tools, skillful means, that bring about some result. And so that's the way to think about it. And the Buddha didn't teach Buddhism, and probably Christ didn't teach Christianity either. Or, you know, and you can point to any sort of the well-known spiritual teachers Although, of course, there are people who would disagree with me, but this is my opinion. What they taught is they taught about opening to the truth or letting go of our delusion. That's what spiritual teachers teach. They just have different means to do it. And then ordinary human beings get stuck on the means and want to rarefy the means and praise and worship the means. And they forget about the path, that the path is really this very personal path of opening, letting go of our self-centered delusion and opening to what's beyond self-centered concepts and self-centered thinking. And uh, so in Buddhism, there's, I don't think there's any problem. The Buddha did teach a very distinct path, and uh, I think it's important to hear those teachings, to get a sense of where it goes, and then you'll just see how this same teaching is coming from a lot of different places. So I don't disagree with people who, who say that uh, you should have one path. I think basically that's true. But when you get pretty clear about a path for you, then you should let that path be informed by whatever informs that path. And in the beginning, it's more confusing. And then the more we kind of get involved, the less confusing it is. And some people tend to be more generalists and can really handle diversity better than other people. And that's just how it is. So if you happen to be, or if somebody happens to be somebody who gets confused by diversity, 
than stay away from diversity. Just find one particular uh, lineage of teaching and just that you trust and just stick with that. And it's not that you have to reject the others, but you just understand personally, I get confused when I hear too much or when I hear things from different angles. But other people, it's exactly what they need. There's a kind of triangulation where you hear it here, you hear it here, you hear it here. They're all pointing and you get a better sense of what things people are pointing to when you hear it from different perspectives. But a lot of that is just personality. You know, the way our minds are made up, kind of conditioning we have. What's good for us? Terry. working with that version. And um, I, I, maybe I'm just having a lot of confusion, but I haven't had a lot of aversion. And I feel like, <laughs> which I never thought I'd say after a <laughs> um, And I'm confused. And I feel like I'm kind of running out of steam. Because I feel like, okay, this is okay. This is okay. This is okay. And then I'm kind of, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> Good. So what is that? What is that experience? Yeah, or doubt or confusion. Exactly. So often when we when we uh, sort of clear out some of the more regular visitors patterns in our mind, then there are these more subtle but pervasive patterns that we tend not to recognize as things in the mind, like uh, just a, a general feeling of boredom or a general feeling of restlessness, uneasiness, or a general feeling of doubt or confusion. And it almost seems like it isn't anything to look at, but it is something to open to. And, and generally, it will have a feeling tone associated with it, slightly unpleasant, slightly exciting or pleasant. So just notice like what the feeling tone sounds from what you described, that it's slightly unpleasant. You know, like uh, you feel a little bit uncertain, and that's probably an unpleasant feeling. So you notice the uncertainty or the doubt or the confusion, and you feel the unpleasantness of it. And you really relax, as if this state were to last forever, that kind of acceptance. And then it will probably change, and then something else will happen. So this is really important, that we should not be surprised by any particular state that arises. In fact, there's no state that could be somehow inappropriate that could arise in our practice. It's always the next teacher. It's always the next thing to find a way to, to open to and to see clearly, not to filter, see it with a filter of any sort. Oh, it's just this. I always say to people, just because it's been so true in my practice, that when things get subtle, it's really hard because we're used to things being clear, like the joy being clear or the pain being clear. And then things get sort of subtle and it's almost like, well, nothing's happening. And it's like we have to go back to school and learn all over again the practice because we're just dealing at another level of subtlety and uh, things won't be clear and loud like we're that are, that's familiar. And we're just in a different place. Maybe time for one more question if anybody has anything. Nancy? 
comment that you're saying, the more we accept impermanence, that it was almost alluding to the fact that like, we could consider ourselves renunciants. Well, only if we want to be free. <laughs> <laughs> In that You can be associated with your partner and your home and your car and your clothes and your wealth, but we can't own it because it, that's just the concept. I mean, it's okay to use that language. There's nothing wrong with saying, do you want to ride in my car or something like that. But to understand that it's not really, it's, that's not really the experience. It's not really the way it is. It's just uh, this thing is associated with this thing. That's all. <clears throat> and uh, so it's really, a renunciation really is about the mind. Now, it doesn't mean that it isn't helpful to play with the world. So to, to do eight precepts sometimes when you go on retreat where you don't eat after lunch, you know, just as a practice of renunciation, just to see what comes, like, are we really ready to renounce that? Not that, you, not that there's anything bad with eating dinner. But what would it be like? I mean, probably nobody would starve if they didn't eat dinner. So just to let something go like that sometimes, or to practice generosity a little bit beyond our comfort zone sometimes, um, like to give someone more time when we were really wishing to have an evening to ourselves or something. It's really good to play with renunciation on this more gross level. But the freedom comes from the renunciation on the inner level, the mind not clinging not possessing things, not even possessing a sense of self. That's the path that we're on, is uh, um, taking refuge in awareness, not in the concepts or the activity of that awareness, but just in the awareness. So no construction of this is mine, that's yours. It has to be quickly, so. Yeah, Follow up to that. Um, when Ajahn Chandrakar was here over the summer in Houston, where I feel well chatting with him, and he was talking about taking it to the house, and he said that he didn't think it was any big deal because we all are renunciants. When we play our stereo, we're, we're renouncing silence. And when we own a car, we're renouncing the freedom of not having to take care of a car. <laughs> um, and that basically, he thought all of us were in some ways renunciants. We just don't think we're renunciants because. Think that by getting something, we're getting something else instead of getting something else. Yeah. Um, and I, to me, that was a really helpful thought, and it makes, you know, even said, you know, when it's paper or plastic, you're renouncing something. Mm -hmm. You know, when you say paper, you're renouncing plastic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and for me, that's made a lot of my choices better, and it's made that whole concept just have a lot more life and um, practicality for it. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah, Tikhan Han says uh, that anicca, impermanence, doesn't mean you have to let go. It means you know that things go away. That's a, sort of another way of playing with this.